Well, good morning, gentlemen. Hope you're having a great summer. Um, hard to believe we're halfway through it already. And uh, just for your um, schedule's benefit, we're going to meet again one more time on our summer schedule in August, and uh, it'll be the same Thursday in August. You will um, get an email or several to that effect, and make sure you understand when and, and uh, how we're going to be meeting next time. And so we look forward to one more session here this summer before we begin, again, our fall schedule. Um, we really love having the opportunity to do things the way that we do them here in the summertime, knowing that so many guys are uh, traveling and on the road and away from town. It's, it's a, a fun thing for us to be able to get together at least once a month and um, hear from some voices that we might not otherwise get to hear during the year. And uh, so last time we had Larry Jensen with us talking about the gospel as it comes to Memphis. Um, today we have a special privilege. Um, we've asked one of our um, godly men in our, in our church here at Second Presbyterian uh, to come and just share from his heart on something that um, is something that God stirs within his own ministry and heart. And so Dr. Bill Weber will be uh, with us this morning. If you don't know him, Dr. Weber uh, has been a physician his whole career. He spent 33 years in private practice and then another 11 or so um, as professor of medicine down at the University of um, Medical Center. And uh, more than that, um, in the time that I've been here at Second, I've just observed Bill's life to be as much uh, a doctor of souls as he is of our bodies. And I felt like it would be a great opportunity for us to have some of that spoken into our lives this morning. And so it's just a joy and a privilege for us to welcome this morning Dr. Bill Weber. Thank you, Mike, for that nice introduction. Um, I'm all ready for this. I've got my tie straight and my fly is zipped. My hair is combed and I've got new batteries in, so I'm in good shape for the morning. About, I guess it was about six weeks ago, the last amen of the regular uh, season, Mike came to me after the lesson and I knew he had something on his mind. You know, when you're going to ask someone to do something, there's something about your countenance that changes. And his certainly changed, and he was all smiles. And uh, he said, uh, you know, during the summer months, different folks come and speak to uh, the group at Amen, and I knew what was coming. And I said, oh, no, not me, Mike. And he never even acknowledged that I was talking. He just kept going on with his little spiel. And, you know, he's very soft-spoken, but very persuasive. And I kept saying, Mike, that is not my style at all. I can't do that. And he just kept talking. And then as he got to the end of it, he said, and I want to assign you a topic. I said, well, what is that? And the topic was mentoring. And I knew right when he said that, that I would be here this morning, but I didn't let him know. I made him sweat it for a little bit. And I called him back that week and said, Mike, I, I want to do this. So uh, you've got a speaker for July. So here I am. Uh, before we get started, uh, let me open us with a word of prayer. 
Holy Father, you've promised us in Scripture that when we gather together in your name, you will be in our midst. And we claim that promise this morning for our time here together. Lord, remind me that I'm here not because of anything I've done, but because of my redemption through the shed blood of Jesus and the forgiving grace of the mighty Lord God. Move me aside, Lord. Make me invisible so that you alone may be glorified in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. On your table, there are a couple of printouts, and then there's a sheet. If you would like a copy of that, put down your name and your email address, an email address that is legible, because, you know, all those little things make a difference. And I will email that uh, to you uh, sometime this week. In 2012, a man by the name of Patrick Morley wrote an article reporting on elephants in uh, South Africa in the Kruger National Park. That's one of those parks that has the big five of all the, the animals that the animal lookers like to go see. But the elephants were overpopulating the park, and the government didn't know quite what to do. They did not have enough food supply for the number of elephants that were there. So they decided that they would either relocate all of the adults and if they couldn't find a place for all of them, they would kill them. And they did that in great numbers. Following that, uh, the young elephants, the young bull elephants, the boys, uh, grew up. And as they moved into their adolescent years, they became very violent. And it was totally out of control. And in one park, uh, the young bull elephants killed 36 rhinoceros and they killed hippopotamuses. And the park rangers saw that after they killed them, they would line up and they would stick their tusks through the bodies. And then they started attacking people, and they attacked cars. And there was a video, some of you may remember it, it went sort of viral on the internet of this bull elephant uh, charging a car, sticking his uh, tusks through the door, impaling the driver, and then tossing the thing in the air, and it rolled and rolled and rolled. You may have remembered that. So this was not normal elephant behavior. Something was awry. And they decided one of the ways they would address it would be get six or seven adult, mature male elephants and put them back in the park and see what effect that had on the youngsters. The day they did that, from that point forward, there was never another attack in the park. And I guess, you know, I'm sort of anthropomorphizing elephants, but uh, the message may be that the old elephants had something to teach the young elephants about being an elephant, being a mature boy elephant, and how you should behave. And basically, the old elephant was mentoring the younger elephants. I think one of the pastors used that example, was it you? In church one Sunday evening. But it's a great story. Uh, who here is a mentor to somebody else? Anybody? Oh, that's great. Uh, who here has been a mentor in the past but not currently? Okay. Who, is, who here is being mentored? A few. Uh, who has been mentored in the past? Oh, this is wonderful. 
Now, I'm going to give each of you all 10 minutes to come up here and share your experience. <laughs> and then I'll close in prayer, if that's okay. Is that all right, Mike? I see one of my guys right there at that back table, uh, my good friend. Good morning. Uh, anyway, I appreciate all of you, you being here. Let's try to get a definition of what a mentor is. And you might think that was simple. You just open up the Webster's and go to the word mentor, and that's a really lame definition. And then I started to make my own and found I got all bogged down in what really is a mentor. The reason being that mentors uh, are everywhere, and each mentor type has a different definition. So this is the definition I came up with, and I'm not happy with it, but it was the best I could do. It's one who teaches or gives encouragement, help, and advice to someone less experienced and usually younger. And I think the less experienced and the usually younger is uh, one of the keys to successful mentor relationships. Now, who knows what you're called if you are being mentored? The person to whom? Anybody got that word? That's one. That is one. Disciple. The word that's used in these articles that I've been reading is mentoree or mentee. And I think that is the lamest word. Uh, in fact, I don't even like the word mentor. It sounds, I mean, mentoree sounds like some kind of a fish. And I would hate to be referred to as a mentoree. Uh, you'd think you had to go to the doctor the next day to get it cured. But that's what we're going to use this morning for lack of a better word. And those of you who are uh, high on the intelligence, work on the definition and work on another name for he who is being mentored. And that's what it says in the dictionary is, what is a mentoree? One who is being mentored. Uh, that too is rather lame. And then we have synonyms. You already, already came up with some of them. For the mentor, you could say coach, advocate, role model, teacher, preceptor. And for mentoree, uh, Mike, I think you mentioned protege, intern, student, apprentice. In the trade unions, uh, we used to have journeyman uh, programs. I don't know if those still exist with most of those folks learning a trade are going to the community colleges. But it used to be if you wanted to be an electrician, you would sign up with a licensed senior electrician and spend time with him and learn how to hook all those wires up. And that was in their uh, <coughs> journeyman programs. I was not aware of the word mentor up until probably the late 70s, maybe even into the 80s. It was not a word that was commonly used. Is that y'all's experience? Did you, have you talked about mentors for a long, long time? I, I certainly have not. Uh, and then uh, in the 1970s, it, mentoring was moved into the corporate world. And people who were mentored or interned in a corporation were thought to be more likely to succeed in the corporation and advance up the corporate ladder. Well, in fact, mentors have been talked about a long, long time, just not by that word. And the first recording of the word mentor is in none other than Homer's Odyssey. And I'm sure from your college days you remember all of those characters. Uh, mentor was the name of one of the 
principal characters in that poem. It was, they think it was uh, written in the late 800 BCs. Mentor was assigned the task to guide another character named Telemachus in his times of difficulty. So Mentor became the uh, preceptor for Telemachus. It is from that poem that the word mentor has been uh, extracted. So that's the derivation of the word. A little bit later on, a man named William Blake was a watercolorist, and he painted a beautiful painting of a professor-looking person in a long academic robe, seated with two young pupils at his feet. And he's reading, or something from a book, and the pupils have scrolls, or I don't know what they are, tablets of some kind. So they're taking notes on the lessons that the senior professor is teaching them. He was mentoring them. We don't know what the subject was. There's a poem in 1797 by Goff that you all are probably at least by name familiar with. It's The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And uh, the sorcerer was the magician, and he had an apprentice that he was teaching the art of sorcery or magic to. That poem was made well known when? Does anybody remember when that came into Fantasia? That's it, 1940. Walt Disney's Fantasia uh, came out, and the, sorc the sorcerer, I don't remember who he was, but the apprentice was Mickey Mouse. And Mickey Mouse thought he had learned everything and was ready to launch his career as a sorcerer, and he turned the kitchen broom into an automatic sweeping broom. You may remember this from the movie. And then he realized he had not learned how to stop the spell. So the broom keeps going, and the, then there's water on the floor, and he breaks the broom in two. Now he's got two sweeping brooms. And before the end of the scene, the kitchen is packed with all these brooms sweeping because he acted thinking he knew what he was to do, but he hadn't gotten all of the lessons yet. Many of the, uh, many religions and philosophical uh, systems use the mentoring system to teach. And I think of the Buddhists. And uh, when I was in the army, I was assigned in Thailand where there are Buddhist temples everywhere. Every young Buddhist male, young being 13, 14, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, to really show their devotion to Buddhism were to enter the temple for the period of one year. And they would take a vow of poverty. When they entered, their head was shaved. They were given you know, that kind of yellow-orange saffron robe to wear, no shoes, and they would go out every morning with a big bowl and beg for the food that they would eat for that day, only for that day. And then they would sit at the feet of the Buddhist monks and be taught the principles of Buddhism. That was a mentoring relationship. And we see the same thing uh, with Hindu gurus. Now think about the Dalai Lama, and people go up to Nepal, up the mountain, to get his advice and his wisdom about issues of life. And I'm not sure this is, is it BC that shows BC going up the mountain, and he, is that right, Jim? He consults with the guru at the, at the mouth of the cave. You all have seen that, I hope. I hope you read the funny papers. 
And that's a mentoring relationship. Whoever the guru is is mentoring BC. Uh, how many of you all have been to Jerusalem? Quite a few. You remember going to the Wailing Wall? And as you look at it, off to the left is a big room, almost like a cavern, and it's carved into the side of the mountain. And in there sit rabbinical Jews all day long. And they pour over these ancient books and scrolls. You remember that, Brian? And there's also a caged-off area with old, old manuscripts uh, about Judaism. And that's, that's all they do. They sit there and read this. Many of them have a younger Jewish man, college age, sitting right next to them. And they are teaching that young man the precepts of Judaism. That's a mentoring relationship where the rabbinical rabbi is teaching the younger Jewish man. Did any of y'all go to a college that had tutorial classes offered? When I was at Rhodes, uh, in your senior year, you could elect a tutorial class where you could select the professor. You met with him once a week. He would give you assignments to read, maybe something to write, and then you'd discuss it at the next uh, session the following week. And you were being mentored in mathematics or philosophy or whatever it was that was being taught in that tutorial. Today, uh, there are interns just about everywhere. And uh, many of my friends that have post-college age kids, I say, well, what, you know, what's Tom doing now? Oh, he's an intern out at uh, FedEx. And what that saying is, he is being mentored by the leadership at FedEx to learn that business. It's not necessarily uh, a guarantee to employment, but it's a way to begin to learn about uh, the business world. And, and how many of y'all have friends in that same situation that are interning? One, it might be at the bank, it might be at uh, whatever. Now, all of what I've mentioned is nothing more than secular mentoring. And there's not a spiritual dimension to it at all. Now, there could be, depending on the mentor, but that's not how it's designed to be. Uh, what we want to talk about this morning is Christian mentoring. And this adds a whole new dimension to our definition. And I added this to the definition. It's helping the mentoree discover the principles of Christian living and integrating them into every aspect of his life. It is discovering how to become a God-man. In that relationship, the mentor modeling the Christian life becomes the main thrust of the teaching. It's not what you say, it's not what you read, but it's the mentoree observing the mentor and saying, I want to pattern my life after that person. I meant to mention something when we were talking about kind of the history of mentoring. Have any of you all read this book? I recommend it. Uh, it's Boys in the Boat by Daniel Brown, and it is about the 1930s uh, rowing team at the University of Washington. And one of the coaches who was there wrote this about the rowing team. He said, every good rowing coach in his own way imparts to his men the kind of self-discipline required to achieve the ultimate from mind, heart, and body. 
which is why most ex-oarsmen will tell you they learn more fundamentally important lessons in the racing shell than in the classroom. I think that is so true, that we get all this academic information in college or trade school or high school or whatever uh, you, way you've been educated, but you learn more from someone mentoring you and kind of telling you how to do life. Um, in the Christian framework of mentoring, uh, the things you talk about shift. And I imagine the interns at FedEx are talking about spreadsheets and ordering and all those kind of things, whatever they do. Uh, maybe how to fly an airplane, hopefully not. But in Christian mentoring, you're talking about God and Jesus, talking about salvation and forgiveness, talking about a Christian worldview, and those are the type of things that you're trying to impart to the mentoree. And uh, you don't have to be expert in all those areas. Uh, you will show by example where uh, you put the focus in your own life. And if you don't know the answer to a topic that's been raised by the mentoree, uh, some of the most rich times that I've had with young men has been when I say, I don't have any idea what the answer of that, to that is, but why don't we look into it together? And you begin to research it or do whatever has to be done to come up with an answer. And during that time, you grow together in fellowship of the Lord. And those are really special times. They don't come up every week, but when they do, uh, they are something to be treasured. We have one example of the perfect mentor, and that is whom? Jesus. Brian, you know it. See, Brian teaches and spends a lot of time in the nursery. And those nursery kids have learned that every question can be answered with Jesus. And they'll never, they'll never be wrong. And so, Brian, you are correct. It is the Jesus, the perfect mentor. And think about uh, in his early ministry how he sought out the disciples. He went out and gathered them up. Now, it was really bold. You know, he said, come follow me, and they dropped their nets in the water. They didn't even go home to get a clean change of underwear, and they hooked up with him. Mike, I don't know if this is uh, true or not, but I have a feeling that maybe those fishermen had kind of been watching him and seeing how he led his life and where his uh, foundation was, and they thought, if this is an opportunity he's giving me, I want to be on board. Uh, maybe not. It may have been just a one-time walking down the road and, and there are uh, disciples in waiting and they join on and they spend then uh, their time together. They live together. They eat together. They travel together. Uh, they worship together. And all that time, the disciples are being spoon-fed by the Lord Jesus. And if that isn't the perfect uh, picture of a mentor, wouldn't you have loved to have been a disciple and had that opportunity? Uh, you th sometimes I think, well, look at all the stuff that 
the disciples walked away from, you know, back in their little town. But they walked away from something that had no comparison to what they were walking into. Likewise, Paul, in his teachings, taught the uh, early church to look to him for the answers to many of their questions. And some of the people that he spoke to viewed that as arrogance. And uh, it really wasn't. Because if you, if you really think about Paul's teaching, when he was talking to a church and instructing them and things to do and maybe things not to do, uh, he was not instructing from his own knowledge. But if you could think of him as being transparent, the knowledge that he obtained from Jesus was shining through him to those churches. So basically, they were being taught by Jesus himself, not by Paul. And uh, in Romans, we read about uh, the topic. It's a little hard to get your hand on it called mutual faith, and I'm still not sure I completely understand it, but it is Christians coming together, encouraging one another, inspiring one another, supporting one another, doing ministry together, learning scripture together, understanding what it means to worship, praying together, all for the glory of God. And in that is the strength of the church. It is Christian men and women and young people coming together, bringing all of the talents together uh, mutually to present Christ to a fallen world. Uh, Think about what Paul said in 2 Timothy. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Do you want me to read that again? There is so much in that. There is not only the teaching of Paul, but then there is the expectation of the pupils to continue to do the same thing to the next generation. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. That's 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. And it's kind of the, uh, I think it's the uh, basic verse upon which mentoring uh, should be based. Let's move from kind of those generalities into more specifics. And let's say that you would like to become a mentor. Uh, you have a heart for that. And in your uh, sheet there on the table, there uh, on the back, it lists qualifications to be a mentor. Now, this is not an all-inclusive list, and there are exceptions, and none of these are uh, absolute exclusions to being a mentor, but there are things that uh, you should strive for if you're going to be effective as a mentor. One is be committed to Christ for your salvation and his teachings for life's instructions. Uh, that's not negotiable. You know, you have to be a believer in order to do this. 
be committed to holy living and desire righteousness. Uh, and that does not mean that you are righteous. It just means that that's what you strive for in your life. And you impart that to the mentoree. Be growing in your faith and uh, have some measurable uh, parameters to see if you're growing. Are you learning scripture? Have you memorized some scripture? Are you excited about scripture? Are you uh, regular in worship attendance at church? Are you engaged with other men where you uh, have a small group? Don Riley, if you don't have one, we'll be happy to put you into one. Uh, and those are measurements of uh, growth in your faith. You should have a basic knowledge of Scripture. And it doesn't mean you have to be a Bible scholar, but uh, sort of know what's in the different parts of the Bible. And if you don't know, know where to go to look it up and desire to learn more. And, you know, have, have daily Bible study. Get a commentary. Get something as you read through uh, a certain book of the Bible. There are lots of ways to read the Bible. But uh, just see that you are enmeshing your daily life in the Scriptures. Be prayerful. Uh, this is probably, this would probably be at the top of the list. Praying for your mentor, praying for your relationship with him, and praying for all aspects of your own life. And that in issues of life that you seek God's wisdom, not the wisdom of man. Be engaged in the life of the church. Uh, I think this is essential and that you need to be in worship service. You need to be active in different parts of the church. And uh, without that, I, I don't know how you can impart to your young man uh, how a Christian ought to live. Be a good listener um, and know how to ask questions. Uh, questions are an opener to a lot of information that can come forth from the mentoree, and you're going to learn so much about him. And they would be questions like, uh, who in your life has influenced you the most? That's a good opener. And if it's Donald Trump or if it's C.S. Lewis, it tells you a whole lot. And you will know when you find out who influenced this person the most in their uh, formulative years how they're thinking. Um, who are your heroes? How did you become a Christian and when? You feel you're growing in your faith? And don't let that be it. Don't, uh, don't ask any yes-no questions. Follow that with, well, tell me how. Where do you have your greatest struggles? And where do you find your greatest pleasure? And what areas of your life have you found your greatest success? And you can go on. There are a lot of questions like this that are good openers to begin a conversation. Be humble. And I look at, hum at being humble, humility is the opposite of arrogance. And that may be too strong. Uh, I have friends who come on with a whole lot of energy. And uh, as soon as you meet them or you're with them, you have heard about their entire life for the month, who they know that's important, and what important things they've been invited to do and when they're speaking at Rotary, and it is all about that person. Those folks don't make good mentors. I hate to say that, but uh, 
they need to put a lid on all that stuff about themselves and learn how to inquire about uh, things in the life of the mentoree. And, and if you can't get over that, then there may be something else that uh, in your skill set God wants you to do, maybe not mentoring. Be committed to absolute confidentiality. The things you talk about with your mentoree uh, cannot be shared anywhere, not even with your spouse. Uh, I have made that mistake a few times. And uh, do you think your spouses keep all those secrets? No, they, they may, you know, at the uh, bridge game say, don't say anything about this. But Bill told me, well, it's out. And the next thing you know, it's in the commercial appeal. Uh, learn to keep your mouth shut. And if you can't keep secrets, uh, you shouldn't be a mentor. I had to learn that and because I'm not a good secret keeper. Uh, and if I hear something that it's a no-tell, well, I just itch to tell somebody else. And some of you all are better at, at holding all that in. You should, before you get started, talk with a pastor and uh, seek their counsel on what you're going to do. They have some great suggestions. They might even have a suggestion on who's available and who would like to be mentored. But uh, a pastor or an elder, maybe the elder shepherd in your Sunday school class, uh, speak to someone in the church who's in authority and let them know your plans. Mike Stokey would be happy to speak to anyone about this because it's a topic that is on his heart as well. Maybe the most exciting qualification is be excited. And, you know, if I call up someone and say, you know, I've got a young man here that would really like to be mentored, and I've kind of got myself mentor-y full, would you be able to do it? Oh, Bill, you know, I am so busy, and that's, I, I don't know if I can do that or not. The kids are busy, and but, you know, if you can't find anybody else to do it, call me back and I'll think about it. Don't call back. Uh, he's not excited about the opportunity. And when you call someone else and they, you say, I'd like you to consider being a mentor. Really? Think I could do that? I've always wanted to do that. That would be great. Sign him up right there. That's the kind of person you're looking for. Now... There are also some issues that might disqualify you. And I'm going to go through these quickly because I want to tell you a story before we're through. Your, your relationship with Christ is not as solid as you feel it should be. You'll have to be the judge. Uh, no one else can determine that. Your life is currently topsy-turvy for one reason or another. And like Anthony Newley saying, stop the world, I want to get off. Uh, your life is too screwed up to take on another person who also has issues. So pass on it. Pass on it for a season until you get things kind of back under control. If your marriage is shaky, uh, not the time to do it. You need to invest all your extra time into your marriage to patch it up and get it back on the right track. The same is if your finances are in a mess. If you have big issues with your children like health concerns or emotional problems or anger problems or schooling difficulties, you need to spend time with that child, not with uh, Robbie Lane on the back table. 
uh, it's far more important. If you're involved in uh, certain addictions like alcohol, drugs, pornography, anger, uh, gambling, um, that is not an absolute uh, game breaker. If you have a problem with alcohol and you've been going to AA and you've been sober for a period of time and you have a sponsor and you're doing all the things the 12-step excuse me, program has outlined, you may be a more effective mentor to someone else that has the same issues uh, than a person that doesn't understand all that. But if you're in engaged in those addictions and you haven't got a handle on it and you're really not seeking help, then mentoring uh, should be postponed until you've got that a little better under control. And if you don't have enough time, just say so. Uh, In the announcements for this, amen, each announcement that came out listed the uh, scripture as something different. And I thought, I need to find out who's putting all those in because I haven't read them all. Uh, one of them doesn't even exist. So uh, <laughs> uh, if you would turn to Colossians, the third chapter, something... It's, it's Colossians 3, starting with the fifth verse. In one of them, it had Colossians 5, starting with the third verse. Well, Colossians doesn't have a fifth chapter. So I thought that was interesting. And I just want to read through this. This is a uh, checklist for your own life. And these are instructions that Paul is giving to the church at Colossae about things that he's observed that need a little, little tune-up. And he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And I'm just going to read these. I'm not going to elaborate on them. Uh, in the Jeb Russell class, we spent a whole month on these few verses, looking at each one of them. But uh, time does not allow that. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, put, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. And then it goes on. Uh, if you take all those things off, uh, I know for me there was a period in my life if, if I removed all those things, I'd be totally naked. I wouldn't have anything left. And then he says, here are the things that you should replace those sins with. It's a beautiful list. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And I love the last three words, and be thankful. Uh, that's a great list. It's a good starting point to 
see, well, now, where am I on this list? What are the things that I need to work on? What are the things that I need to rid myself of? And what are the things that I want to replace that with? Uh, I have a friend. Uh, he lives on the West Coast. Uh, he is distantly related to me, but I didn't know it until a few years ago. Olin, you and Brian know this story. And he contacted me and wanted to get together. It's kind of a distant cousin. And I am his only living Weber relative. So lo and behold, one day, he and his wife and their trailer camper show up at the front door. And I thought, who in the world is this? Well, it was John. And John spent the weekend with us. We actually had a good time. And uh, I learned that he was a believer. And he and his wife were dedicated Christians. And he talked the Christian talk that all of us talk, all the right words. And uh, that was great. And we email back and forth, and it always has, you know, God bless you, I'm praying for you, and all that stuff. Yesterday, I got another email from him. And he is a big bicycler. And it was a rant on the Tour de France. And he was particularly upset at the way the press was reporting. The, the only thing they focused on was the drugs and not the skills of the bicyclists. The language was embarrassing to read. It had all the F words, the GD words, the S word, and at the very end he said, I wish the, and he named the newspaper, they could roll this whole thing up and you know what to do with it, except he spelled it out in uh, explicit terms. I was flabbergasted. I thought, where, did, where is he coming from? And immediately after that, email number two from the same person. Dear Bill, I am so sorry I sent you that email. It was a mistake. It was meant for someone else named Bill. Uh, not only is he embarrassed for having sent it, but now he's embarrassed because he knows that I know a little bit what he's capable of. And I was so disappointed. And he is still a believer. He is still saved. But if he read this list here, I think he has a little work to do. And uh, anyway, I just share that. It came at kind of an opportune time. I think, I don't know if I gave you the list on how to choose a mentoree. I'm going to go through this real fast. Then I'm going to tell a story. Uh, the kind of mentoring that I like to do is informal mentoring. It is not arranged by anybody else, just two guys getting together and starting this relationship. There are more formal programs if that appeals to you. There are seminars, there are groups where you're put with the person that you are to mentor. The women have uh, a group, I don't know if they're still meeting, the Bloom program, and that's a mentoring program that's much more organized. First, pray that God will lead you to the person that you're to mentor. And that probably is the most important thing. Pray, pray, pray. Uh, I am not sure the next one is true, that it's up to you, the mentor, to seek out the mentoree. And when I wrote that, I thought that was true. And then I started thinking about those who I have mentored, and probably a good half, if not more of them, came to me and said, would you mentor me? So. Uh, that can be done either way. You can seek out a mentoree. The mentoree can seek out a mentor. 
Talk to the pastors and church leaders, Sunday school teachers, and others who might be able to direct you to a good candidate. It really helps if you have something in common with the person that you're going to mentor. And for me, it's medicine. And that's where all, that's the source of all my guinea pigs. And we have in common uh, all being doctors. They weren't. Some of them were medical students when we got started. But having some common uh, point of reference with that person really does help. And it may be that uh, you're into the same hobbies or sports. Uh, maybe you're both interested in art or gardening or whatever it might be. But it's not an essential, but it makes it a lot easier. The next one is uh, you can't violate. You have to mentor someone of the same gender. Would you agree with that? You know, uh, guys, should, guys should not be, uh, turn up the volume, Jim. Uh, you want my batteries? <laughs> uh, guys cannot mentor women. There are going to be issues that come up you couldn't possibly talk to a woman about, and the reverse of that is also true. The mentoree should, in general, be younger and less experienced. Uh, that's kind of fits into the definition of what a mentor is, that it's not a, necessarily a mentoring of peers, but it could be. But in my experience, it's been with people who are younger and less experienced. Uh, I would not feel comfortable if someone assigned me uh, a person to mentor. And I have found it best to meet one-on-one -on -one rather than as a group. You can't get very far with four or five guys together. One of them is going to occupy all the time, and the others aren't going to have a chance to express themselves. So uh, I have found it best to meet one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and we usually meet for breakfast or lunch or coffee or something like that. It's a good format to, to uh, meet on. Now, in our remaining time, I'm going to tell you a story. In July of 2001, uh, almost exactly 14 years from today, I was in Hilton Head, the island, with my family uh, visiting relatives. It's a good way to freeload on the relatives and you get to go to the beach. So uh, we went, I, have a, I had an aunt, she's now deceased, who was 90 years old, who had been widowed the year before that I was very close to. So we got to see her, and it was a great time. We were eating at this uh, marina kind of place, and my daughter noticed a sign on one of the boats, night fishing trips, sharks. And she thought that would really be great. So uh, I thought it was a little pricey, but we went ahead and the next night went out shark fishing. Now, we didn't leave in the night, but we, by the time we got or should have gotten to the fishing spot, it would have been dark. So we pile into the boat, and it was a pretty big boat, maybe 25 feet long. It was of that, uh, oh, what do you call those with the center pod where they steer it? Hmm? No. Uh, a what? Well, anyway, it's a big boat, and <laughs> the, con the controls were in a pod in the center, and there was only one seat, and it was right in front of that uh, console, and it had a pad on it. And otherwise, you just kind of stood around. So this thing had two huge outboard engines on it. And we head out, and my daughter, who uh, was pretty cute at that time, she was in college, um, had on shorts, 
and the guy who was driving the boat was young and hormonally active and I think he was I think he was paying more attention to her than he was boat driving but we're on our way and then he pushes those throttles to the front have you ever been in a boat where the it's not really waves but it's rough and the boat starts doing that well it got so bad I couldn't stand up so I went to the front of the boat and there was a storage fiberglass console it was part of the boat and I sat on that and my daughter came around and she was leaning against uh, the side and then we hit uh, a big wave and the front of the boat went way up and then it came down faster than I came down and it came back up on the other side of the wave and the boat and I connected like that. She was nearly thrown overboard and had to be grabbed to keep from going in. So I knew immediately that something bad had happened because the pain of that was just extraordinary. And I was stretched out on the bottom of the boat and needless to say the fishing trip was aborted and we went back to the dock. Well, the, the end of that story is that I had fractured three vertebrae in my upper spine and fractured a rib and one of the things had pushed a disc out into the spinal canal so I had a compression of my spinal cord and lost reflexes in my life. It was just a mess. So I spent the next year having multiple surgeries and physical therapy and nerve blocks and uh, getting depressed because I was not happy with what was going on and I was not able to go back to practice. I tried it a couple times but I just couldn't do the, the, I didn't have the stamina to do what my job required. So I'll never forget the, the day that I walked out of the office and I knew when I walked out that I would never come back and I didn't. So that was even more depressing. Uh, then I'm seeing my internist for a general evaluation and he happened to be the director of medical education at Methodist University Hospital where the residents and the interns and some of the medical students rotate. And Vicki, my wife, was with me and he said, Bill, I'd like you to come and join us here in the teaching practice and you can just do outpatient clinic work. You won't have to walk or stand a lot. And kind of like putting off Mike Stokey on doing what I'm doing right now. I started to say, well, I'll think. And Vicki said, he'll do it. <laughs> well, that, that began the best days of my practice of medicine from that point forward. And uh, far more rewarding, though the private practice was rewarding and I loved it. Uh, it was a, a different a different experience. There were all these young guys who were uh, rotating from medical school or they were in an internship or they were starting internal medicine residency and they were all coming to clinic and seeing patients and we'd talk about it. And it was more fun and more stimulating than anything I had ever done. I had to read a whole lot more so that they didn't know more than I did. And at the end of the day, I had a workstation down at the end of the clinic. They would come down and we'd start to kind of review some of the cases and talk about diabetes or other things that most of you would find rather boring. But then after a while, the tone of that began to shift. And they were asking life issue questions, like how do you balance your professional life with your family? You know, how do you get to your children's uh, 
performances, athletic or, you know, choir or something? Do you go or do you just, are you here all the time? And that began to dominate the nature of our little get-together. From that, I identified three or four of the guys who were Christians. And that was kind of rare. The medical school is not necessarily known for the bastion of evangelism. But uh, here these guys were, and they were committed Christians. Uh, two of them were members here at Second. And they said, we'd like to talk about that some more. So we started a Thursday night Bible study at our house. And uh, Vicki would cook up a big meal. I never saw people eat like they did. And uh, we'd eat, and then we would sometimes go on for two hours talking about issues of life. And we used a scripture to uh, be our uh, source for uh, the discussion. And then they start to complete what they're doing. And they're going into hospital uh, residency work, and it becomes impossible to get six or eight guys together on a single night. Remember that if you're going to mentor more than one person. Getting a hold of them is tough. They do not answer their telephones. They do not answer emails. And the only way you can possibly reach them is with texting, which I had to learn how to do. Um, so that began, and they, but they still had all these questions. So we started meeting one-on-one. -on -one, and that grew, and it, that was you know, 14 years ago. And I'm still meeting with some of those same guys. And it has been the greatest thing in my life. And we have had issues of every type, from uh, drugs to pornography to uh, alcohol to gambling to sexual orientation to dating. Sex is a big issue. And, you know, when, yes, no, before, after marriage, uh, they all want to know about that. Uh, getting married and getting into a, a premarital relationship, that's where it's really fun, and seeing these couples get together. And then Vicki gets involved with the potential bride and wife, and it just kind of it just rolls on and on. And now we have folks out in practice and uh, having babies, and we've gone to weddings from one end of the state to the other and participated in some of the weddings. And it's like these are my extended family guys. And God has blessed me in such a rich way. That is available to you all. And uh, it may not play out as exciting as it has for me, but that's what I offer to you if you would consider uh, being a mentor. So I'm going to stop. I think our Time is one minute, and does anybody have a question, comment? Brian, you wanted to make make a comment about something. Downline mentoring and um, it's a. And if you're not familiar with downline, see me afterwards, and I'll be glad to give you a little bit more about it. But uh, it is a. Um, um, fire hose approach to learning the gospel and learning how to mentor. And if you want to learn about Amway products, you can also speak to Brian. <laughs> um, any other, 
Anybody else? Huh, Mike. No, and you know I have I have given this little talk, not this one, but I've talked about that story several times, and I've said uh, that boat ride changed my life forever. And they all think, oh poor Bill, you know he can't do anything anymore, and he hurts all the time. But it was it changed my life for good forever. A lot of us were depressed, and he no longer could be our doctor. <laughs> we were depressed too. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Mike, you want to say anything? Okay. Uh, let's close with a prayer. Uh, Holy Father, we thank you for the many ways that you uh, open the Scripture to us where it can be practical and can be applied to our lives. And for those who are uh, attracted to being a mentor, we pray you would work in their hearts and open opportunities for them or those who would like to be mentored to bring those folks together so that they can start an exciting relationship. And Father, we thank you for uh, forgiving us, for loving us the way you do, and for saving us through your uh, sacrifice of your life. And uh, go with us now uh, throughout this day. May we be salt and light to everybody who we uh, contact. And uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.